Hi, I'm Ben. I'm a first year maths and physics student, and I'll be reading uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 30 to chapter 10, verse 21. You can follow along in your handouts. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by law. The person who does not see these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they not believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Thanks, Ben. You'll find an outline uh, in the newsletter if that's helpful for you. Now, for some reason, rocket scientists have a reputation... Uh, sorry, rocket science has a reputation of being really complex, so esoteric... Uh, that it makes quantum physics look like child's play. Have you noticed that UWA does not have a school of rocket science? It's too complex for us. We, we can't do it. We've got chemical engineering, we've got law, we've got medicine, but rocket science, we can't do it. 
You may be aware that the Indians last week landed a probe onto the moon. Well, they tried to land it, but they lost it halfway down. They don't actually know what happened to it yet. They presume it crash-landed. Now, before you laugh at the Indians and their incompetence in rocket science, remember that Australia has never had a rocket. Okay, (laughs) We're just not in the field. They at least have had an attempt. But I think for many people, Christianity feels a bit like rocket science. The complexities of the Incarnation and of the Trinity. One plus one plus one equals one. That seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Uh, If you went to the the debate uh, between Muslims and Christians last week, you'll know that some of that complexity was there on display and it was being laughed at. Last week, as we looked at Romans 9, Ben helped us to see that God predestines things. God chooses whom to be merciful to. God hardens the heart of others. And you might be thinking, but what about free will? My head hurts just trying to think about it and put the ideas together. And if you zoom out a little bit, I'm sure all of us are aware that Christianity is just one player amongst many in the religious options that are available to people. And the complexity of comparing one against another, contrasting this with that, whether it's Islam or atheism or or, or humanism, is very difficult and time-consuming. And so lots of people, I think, say maybe the best option is simply to stay open-minded, refuse to choose. Well, Romans 10 comes into that scene and says to us Christianity is actually very simple. At its heart, at its core, it's very, very simple. You see that in verse 8 of, of chapter 10. He says, uh, he, quoting the scriptures, the word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. It's not out there somewhere that you can't access. It's not locked away in a cupboard where only very clever people get. It's very close to you. It's in your heart and in your mouth. Yes, there are depths to satisfy the most curious mind. But you don't need to be a rocket scientist, a philosopher, a PhD to get Christianity. And Paul in this passage uses the image of a rock to try and get through to us, especially those of us who've got rocks in our heads. So you look at that last verse in chapter 9, verse 33. God says, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. He sort of imagines God dumping into the world a huge slab of granite, just plonked down in the middle of history, into the centre of the world. Now, a rock has got a couple of different ways that it can affect your life. You know, imagine there's a big plonk of, 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 uh, of granite down here. Now, if the world feels shaky, if you're not quite sure what's going on and you're feeling insecure, a rock is a place of safety. It's a place of refuge. You can climb onto the rock, clamber up there, sit on it, and it's not going to move. You're safe. You're secure. And that's the second half of verse 33. The one who believes in him, who puts their trust in this rock, will never be put to shame, will never be shown up of having chosen the wrong thing to to trust in. But if you're oblivious to it, you're sure to crash into it sometime and bark your your shins. You're going to trip over it and go sprawling. If you ignore it, you'll still stumble over it because there it is right in the middle of history. And Paul says that's what God's done. He's put this rock, and that rock is Jesus. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. God sent his son into history at a certain point, 
at a certain place who did things. He healed people. He taught. He was there. You could touch him and, and feel him. And he, and he died for the sins of the world and rose again to real, physical, immortal life. And in Paul's mind, that's the rock. That's the turning point of history. And so Christianity, he says, is dead simple. If that rock is in place, then, he says in verse 11, anyone who believes in him, who trusts him, will never be put to shame. Never. Not this week, not next week, not in eternity. Or even more simply in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's Christianity in a nutshell. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. If you call on him to save you, he'll do it. Whether you understand rocket science or not, whether you explain one in three persons in perichoatic union or not, whether you're Anglo or Indian or African or Israeli, whether you're strong or weak, confused or clear, uh, whether you're an arts major or an engineer, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And calling on someone to save you is dead simple, isn't it? You know how to do that. If my phone is suddenly dead, I say, Matt, can you help me? Come on, here's my phone. Can you do something for me? If you can't do an assignment, you get someone else in your course who did it last year and say, please help me. If a bear is about to attack you and kill you, please help me. You know how to call on people, don't you? Well, Jesus is much more significant than a phone or, or a bear, but not necessarily more complex. What it takes when you're in trouble is not extreme cleverness, but simple, clear confidence, convictions that someone can help you. And so that's what he says in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, if Jesus is still rotting in a grave somewhere in Palestine, he can't save you, can he? He can only save you if he's risen from the dead. If he's conquered death and hell, if he's the victorious Lord of all, if he is, then he can save you. So if, if I ask Matt to save me from a bear that's about to kill me, what does Matt need to be? Stronger than a bear. <laughs> he needs to be able to kill the bear. If he kills the bear, he can save me. If he can't kill the bear, he can't. Well, how can Jesus save me from death and hell? Well, if he's risen from the dead, he can, can't he? He's defeated death. He's won over evil, and so he can save me. If Jesus isn't raised, he can't save me, but if he is raised, he can. And of course, unless I'm convinced that Jesus is Lord, that he's slayed death itself, I won't call on him to save me. And so he says, you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Not as if they're two separate things. Because my words always reveal my convictions, don't they? My, my real beliefs. If I'm unwilling to publicly say Jesus is Lord, then he's not my Lord. Something else is more important. I fear something more than Jesus. It's dead simple. Call on Jesus to save you and you'll be saved. Not because your calling is really good, as if you're somehow a great caller. No, it's because Jesus is really good at saving He's an expert at it. He died for our evil so that we could be justified, counted right before a holy God. He rose from the dead and so is able to give us, mere mortals, eternal life.
And that information is accessible to all. That's really what verses 6 to 8 about. Verse 6, the righteousness that's by faith uh, says, don't say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? As if somehow we need to bring Christ down. But just don't think that this is so far away that unless we are really, really good for a whole week or a whole month, Jesus will stay up in heaven. No, Jesus came to earth. He did it in history. The Son of God, God the Son, became one of us. He didn't wait for us to try and access him. He came and made himself accessible to us. Or don't say, who will descend into the deep, sort of to bring Christ up from the dead, because Christ has already come up from the dead. I don't need to go there and get him and somehow win over death itself. Me, I, I can't do that. But Christ has done it already. And so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord... There's no difference in verse 12. Jew, Gentile, the same Lord is Lord of all. So verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't stress about whether you're clever enough or not, or good enough, or chosen. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if we zoom out in the passage a little bit, it's clear that Paul is wrestling with his own experience of life that as he goes preaching the gospel around the Mediterranean world of the first century, many, many Gentiles are responding to the message. But most Jews, his fellow Israelites, are not responding. They're rejecting the message about Jesus. And for Paul, that's a very personal thing because he's an Israelite. He loves them. His identity is still there. He, He still cares about them. And he sees his friends, his family, his kinsmen, refusing the message of salvation. And he's really asking, what's going on? How do I explain this? And he begins in chapter 9, verse 30, to notice that something unexpected is going on. In verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained it. So he, he looks at the Gentiles around him and he thinks, My experience of them is they're pretty apathetic. Not many of them were saying, where's God? I want to be righteous before God. How on earth can that happen? Good sir, what must I do to be saved? Very few of them were saying that. They didn't care about being right with God. But on the other hand, Israel, they were pursuing righteousness. It really mattered to them. They wanted it. They put effort into it. In chapter 10, verse 2, he says that they have a zealousness for God, a zeal for God. They're passionate They're sincere and they're dedicated. But what's happened? Well, those who are apathetic, they've got righteousness. Those who are zealous, most of them are missing out. It seems the wrong way round. What on earth is going on? Well, he explains it by saying there's two different ways of being righteous and only one of them works. What's Israel doing? Verse 32. Well, they pursued it not by faith, not by trusting in God's rescue, but as if, as if it was by works. That is, they think that they can somehow win God's approval, be right with God by what they do, by their efforts. And they're doing all they can to keep God's law, to list it all out, to memorise it, trying really, really hard to keep it day in and day out, hoping that somehow they'll be good enough for God, that they'll get God's tick of <clears throat> approval. But the Gentiles, what are they doing? Well, they just hear about Jesus that he came and died and rose again to rescue them. And so they trust him. It's by faith. 
They rely not on their own efforts, but on his work. And in chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, in that sense, they submit to God's righteousness. God mounted this costly rescue operation and they submitted to it. They, They welcomed it. They complied with what God was doing instead of rejecting it. But Israel, on the other hand, they ignored it. They refused God's way of doing it. They resisted God's rescue operation. Too proud to ask for help. Too invested in earning it for themselves. The track they're on to change tracks. Self-reliant, but futile. And so he says it's like Gentiles. Well, they've embraced Jesus, Christ. But for Israel... Christ, well, they pretend there's no Christ, as if he never came and died and rose again, as if he's not relevant. And Paul says that's about as dumb as pretending there's no gravity or there's no exams at the end of semester. At one point, you're going to trip up against that reality. You're going to hit the hard rock of Jesus. Because either Jesus is Lord and can save you and will save you if you call upon him, or you ignore Jesus and go it alone and come a cropper. And so The Gentiles, their way of getting righteousness is dead easy. They're rescued by Jesus. They just ask him. They call on Jesus to rescue them and they're rescued. But for Israel, it's impossible. He says in verse 5, the law says the person who does these things will live by them. But doing them is impossible. Paul knows that. Israel knows that. And it's not just impossible, it's sort of complex to work it out, isn't it? If you're trying to keep the law, how much do you have to keep? What pass, what's the pass mark? Well, the Bible says clearly the pass mark's 100%. But we tend to, to sort of argue back and say, well, surely 95%'s okay, isn't it? You've got to be a bit of leeway. After all, we're just human, aren't we? Or can I weigh up my good versus my bad? Like, if I help somebody else with their assignment, does that make up for lying to them about how clever I am? I don't know. And how do we take our motives into account? Because surely they're part of it and yet my motives are always mixed. It's complex if you try and do it by the law. Why did Israel get it so wrong? Why wouldn't they submit to God's gift? Why did they refuse to be rescued by Jesus? Well, for Israel, I think, I take it, it's partly because it's just too simple and it's too humbling. It sort of seems crazy, though, doesn't it? To refuse help when things go wrong. You know, if your car's broken down and somebody offers to help, I presume you say, thank you. If it's raining and somebody comes along with an umbrella, I presume you say, can I come under your umbrella? And yet, actually, it's so typical. I don't know how many times now I've had conversations where I've explained to somebody that Jesus has died for them and risen again to offer them (coughs) eternal life. And I say, will you ask Jesus to rescue you? And so often the answer is, no, I think I'll be okay. And I go, really? (laughs) Do you honestly think your life is good enough? And they'll they'll normally say, oh, I know I'm not perfect, but I'll take my chances. And I say, but do you think Jesus died for you if you didn't need it? That doesn't seem to make sense. And they say, oh, I don't care really. I think I'll be okay. And I say, well, if I take your position, even in the best possible light, That's a huge risk, isn't it? Won't you at least explore this? And so often they'll say, oh, I'll take the risk. Can you believe it? There's something wrong with that response, isn't there? Because if you follow what Paul has said, it's clear that the destiny of every person, of each person, hangs on their response to Jesus. 
And he spells out that logic in verses 14 and 15 as a sort of chain. How can they call on the one they haven't believed in? That makes sense, doesn't it? I'm not going to call on somebody I don't believe in. How can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? Believing requires a conscious act of my volition to hear something and then trust it, to believe it. If if I haven't heard it, I can't do that. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? It doesn't just pop into my mind. And how can they preach unless they're sent? So Paul traces out this this logic. If you put it in chronological order, then it's sent, preach, hear, believe, call, and so are saved. And Paul says that that's a chain. If, if you drop any link in the chain, it doesn't work, does it? How can you believe in the one that you haven't heard of? How can you hear unless somebody tells you? You need every link in the chain. But notice, Paul doesn't start with people looking for God and pursuing righteousness. He starts with God sending people with his message about Jesus, about salvation. The initiative is on God's side. The Gentiles weren't looking for righteousness. But when they heard, when God sent somebody to tell them, including the Apostle Paul, some of them believed and called on the name of Jesus. Now I find that really encouraging because that means I don't need to wait for my friends to ask me, how can I be saved? I can tell them the wonderful news about Jesus and when they hear, they might believe, they might call. But if the chain is compelling, what about Israel? Because Israel, by and large, hasn't called on Jesus to save them. Where did the chain get broken for them? Well, Paul asks that in verse 18. Didn't they hear? Of course they did. They've heard. It's all public knowledge. It's been told to them. Then didn't they understand, verse 19? Yeah, they did understand. What's the problem? Well, verse 21. All day long I held out my hands, beseeching, longing to a disobedient and obstinate people. Plain, pig-headed stubbornness, hard-heartedness. That's why. Well, let's draw some conclusions. This passage is saying very clearly that Christianity is actually really, really simple. It's not rocket science. Salvation is binary. Either you're saved and rescued or you're not. And if you're drowning out at Cottesloe Beach, either you get saved or you don't. You either drown or you back on on dry land again. If an asteroid is coming, heading to Earth to kill us all, well, either it kills us or we somehow work out a way to save ourselves from the asteroid. And Christianity is binary like that. Either we're justified, forgiven, or we're not. Either we're given eternal life through Jesus' resurrection or we don't have it. There's no halfway house. There's no purgatory. There's no third destination I can choose. It's one or the other. Now, some people might come back and say, but what is there to be saved from? I don't feel like I'm in any danger. Can I urge you to think again if that's how you think? First, you need to know yourself a little bit. A bit of self-awareness goes a long way at this point, particularly the evil that comes out of the hearts of all of us. But secondly, you're ignoring the rock, Jesus, his existence, his death and resurrection, because if you didn't need it, then it was a waste of effort. He really shouldn't have bothered. Secondly, it's clear that sincerity and passion is not the issue when it comes to being saved. 
So it's tempting to look around, I think, and see people who are very sincere and very passionate, whether they're Hindus or Muslims or humanitarians or atheists or whatever, and, and think that, well, that's what it's about. It's about being authentic. It's about being genuine, about true to yourself. Surely that counts. Yeah, in one sense, you're right. I really love it when people are sincere and authentic. But as a way of determining what is true and real, it's no help whatsoever. So if I've got a glass here of poison, I'm about to drink it. If I'm really, really sincere that it won't kill me, it won't change a thing. The poison will still kill me. You can be sincerely wrong. And when you are, it can be disastrous. So Israel is sincere. Israel is passionate. If any religion is close to the truth, it's Israel, isn't it? It's Judaism. But what does Paul say in, in verse uh, 1 and 2? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, because at the moment they're not. Now, to think that passion gets you there, sincerity, is misleading. So for us, please don't stubbornly stick to the mantra, well, I'm sincere, I'm authentic, as if that somehow determines the outcome. Now, the reality of Jesus calls for a personal response to Jesus' saving work. You don't get rescued without a conscious choice and action to call on the name of the Lord. And so this chapter is a huge encouragement to pray for our friends, to pray for our families who aren't yet believers, to pray for their salvation and to proclaim to them Jesus, the rock. Verses 14 and 15 are compelling, aren't they? They won't call on Jesus unless they hear. And who's going to tell them if I don't tell them? Yeah, God might raise up somebody else to do it, but he's put me into their life. It's dead simple. Tell people the wonderful news, the humongous news of the Jesus who died and rose again, victorious, that he alone can rescue them from evil and all its effects. And all they need to do is call on Jesus to save them. We're not asking them to become Mother Teresa or Superman or a rocket scientist. And we're not, not being arrogant, we're simply... One beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And if you're not yet a Christian, can I be so bold as to ask what's stopping you? Is it because you feel like it's all too complicated? Conceptually difficult to get your head around? Uh, now, I admit there are some contextual difficulties and, and there's some profundity which is humbling in a satisfying sort of way. Or maybe you think it's too complicated to compare it to the other options that are out there, the other religions, and I go to debates and they both seem to have a point. But at heart, Christianity is dead simple. Just ask Jesus to rescue you from your own evil and its consequences, and he will. If you're convinced Jesus is Lord, that he died and rose again, you don't need to chase down every other religious option. He can rescue you. Muhammad can't. Richard Dawkins can't, David Hume can't, but Jesus can. So will you? Will you call on Jesus to rescue you? If you know it's true, why delay? If you're not sure whether it's true, I, I'm not asking you to do something silly, I, but I'm saying surely you've heard enough to know that this is something really good. It's something that you need. It's something actually quite easy and worth pursuing. And so if it could possibly be true, you'd want to know, wouldn't you? You'd want to explore and find out. Thank you.